Grandma, we are now recording. I am Jonathan Dixon, and I'm here with Grandma Arda Jean Christensen. Uh, say hello, Grandma. Hello, Grandma. <laughs> We're here on the My Family, Her Story podcast, and it is January 27th, 2021. Uh, our goal here is to preserve in podcast form stories and memories for future generations and to have a good time. Today, we are talking with Grandma about her experience with living through World War II as a civilian. Um, Grandma, how old were you when World War II started? Well, it started in Europe before it started in the United States, you know. <clears throat> when the, <coughs> excuse me, when the, the uh, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December the 7th, 1941. I was 12 years old. That's when it started for the United States. Before that, we knew about the war that was going on in Europe. But uh, you know that the Japanese were very treacherous in in that at that beginning because there were there was a an official from Japan in Washington DC talking about how to avoid the war and he knew that the war was about to begin even as he was speaking with our officials in in Washington and that Sunday evening our time I guess it was it was Sunday our time I guess maybe it was Monday in in the far east but anyway We got the word on the, we got the word on the radio that they had bombed our ships in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And we were pretty alarmed about it. My parents had been, my parents had been to a, a meeting of some kind in uh, Richfield, which was about seven miles away from where we lived, but where we lived in Sigurd, very small town, Sigurd. They'd been away and I remember us noticing that they were arriving home and running out to the car to greet them with the news that um, we were at war. So we you you were actually the one who told your, your parents about the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Yes, probably my little sister and I, or my brothers. I don't remember who else was there with me at that exact moment, but I do remember us all running out to the car to, to uh, let them know what had happened and how solemn they were about it and worried about it and so on. It was a, it was a very memorable moment in my young life. And then I remember the next morning, we all went to school as usual. We went, we were going to school over in Richfield. We rode the school bus from Sigurd over to Richfield and I remember us all uh, being lined up outside the door of our of our first classroom and talking about what had gone on. It was everybody's topic of discussion because we knew how grim that was and what a what a 
terrible situation we were all now in. And uh, we were all just discussing it and we, the uh, notice came on the, the uh, public address system that we were only going to talk about the war in our civics class, which would be our US government class. And <clears throat> we were not to talk about it in all the other classes because I could visualize that they had decided nobody would get any work done in school that day because mm -hmm. we'd all be talking about, about the war. So, so they came so, over the PA system and said, yeah. please keep conversation about the war to government and history class so that we can learn about the other things in the other classes. In the other classes. So that was, <clears throat> that was the first thing in school about it. And, and our, our, our government class, our civics class was was devoted to that and and talked about talked about it and and helped us all kind of understand what was going on and what was going to happen. We didn't. None of us knew what was going to happen. We but then by then by that time, President Roosevelt had come on the radio and announced that. Uh, he had declared war and that it was ratified by the by the Senate or I think it's the Senate that has to ratify war. Anyway, he told us that that had happened and and we were all we didn't know what was going to happen, but we were all pretty uh, worried about it and concerned. And the the first thing instantly, the draft was instituted and all our all our men folk from age 18 to 39 i think it was had to register for the draft and then the draft they set up what we called the draft boards of citizens who had uh, who were called and asked to be in this in this position and those those persons on the draft board decided who of all the ones that were registered at in their location would be the ones to immediately go to the war into into the army they were drafted into the army. <clears throat> they could volunteer to be in the in the Navy or the Marines. The Air Force was part of the army at that time. Did you know anyone who was who was drafted or willingly volunteered? Yeah, all my all my all my cousins, uh, my 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 brothers were not old enough yet but uh, the war went on for for 5 years so they got old enough <laughs> but anyway uh, we didn't know at the time how all that was going to come come about my my brother-in-law was drafted my sister's husband was drafted and he he went in the army right away and my other brother-in-law was um was also drafted but he had to return because his eyesight was too poor and when they when they realized when they realized it he was like in the service for about three weeks and when the powers that be realized that he 
his eyesight was that poor, he was released. He was uh, released. What was his name? Do you remember? His name was Clifford Merrill. The, the one who served the whole, he served the whole length of the war. In fact, for several months after the war was over, his name was LaRue Thurston. And he, that, he was in the, he was in all those battles on the, in the, in Europe. And then, and then, uh, I don't mean all of them, but he served throughout the, the war in, in Europe and then and then was being when the war in Europe ended, he was being transferred to serve in the in the um, Pacific theater when when the Japan surrendered. But they didn't say, we thought it, they'd just send him home, but they didn't. They sent him to the Philippines where he was there for several months before they finally got around to releasing him. So anyway, those were the closest persons. I had a, I had a cousin who was uh, in the air, in the Army Air Corps, which at that time was part of the Army, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a separate branch like it is today, but he served in that and was involved in, at the end of the war, he was involved in, in uh, those daily or nightly soirees over Germany at the very end of the war that, that really pounded, pounded Germany. Was meaning as a foot soldier or as some sort of as, uh, air, no, air forceman? Yeah, as a pilot in the, in the, in, he, he was a pilot of a bomber. So that was his close association there. But as it, as it went along, the, basically, Everybody that was able, that was physically able, had to go to war. All, all, all the young men. My one brother-in-law never had to serve because he was older and didn't uh, didn't get in the draft. But the young but the, all the young men, as I said, from 18 to 39, that's just about everybody. They took, took them all to the, to the service. And my, he wasn't my brother-in-law yet, but my, my younger sister's husband served, he elected to join the Navy and he was on a, submarine uh, for his whole service in the, during the war. And uh, then at the end of the war, my younger brother was old enough, my older brother was old enough to, to go in the service. And he, he joined the, the Air Corps as well but it was right close to the end of the war and he just was still in the midst of his basic training when the war ended. So he didn't ever serve overseas or anything, but he came home like the day after. He came home right at the end of the war soon as soon as it was over why he was released and was home again so growing up the uh the war happened while you were 12 to 17 or 18 what was junior high and high school like in uh, wartime america well one of the one of the things that was 
different about it. Ma mainly, you know, we we just went to school and and the school schooling itself was basically the same as it would be for would was before and was after. But um, I had an I had an assignment. I can't remember which grade I was in then, but but I had the assignment to collect the money at the first of the of the at the first of the class in the morning, first thing in the morning. And I had to take the money and go down to the, the office with the money and buy the war stamps for whoever had brought money and wanted to wanted to buy uh, war stamps. And you could buy stamps, collect them in a book. Uh, the stamps cost like, I can't remember, 10 cents or 25 cents for one stamp. And when you had enough, uh, $18 worth of stamps, you could trade that for a war bond that was at um, the war bond cost $18 and would its final value was $25, but you had to save it for 10 years to collect the $25. And I don't know if those things are still going on or not. I, they were going on for a long time after the war. Uh, you could buy, you could buy a government bond for a lesser price, and then the interest would be the amount that it would come to when, when you could cash it in ten years later. And I don't know if that even is still going on or not, but, but it, at the time, it was to finance the the war effort and and they were always promoting the idea of buying bonds buying and the stamps idea was a way of getting a small amount of money and then saving it eventually became more money for the war effort and so this was, the war effort was, of course, financed by the taxpayers, but this was a way of, of uh, getting money that hadn't, it wasn't taxes, it, but it was a, a willful uh, effort to help the to put money into the war effort. Anyway, that was my that was my little job when I was in junior high was to go collect all that money from the from whoever wanted to buy stamps and take it down to the office, get stamps and return them and deliver them to the ones who had purchased them. I don't know if I made that clear about how the how that helped the war effort Did no you, you understand that? yeah i understood so speaking of helping the war effort i understand that there was large-scale rationing during world war ii uh can you tell me about what that experience was like for you well the government issued ration books and they had there was one for each member of the family and they had stamps in them, ration stamps. And you could trade the, you had to have these stamps in order to buy certain goods. Uh, some foods were rationed, sugar was one. You had to have stamps ration stamps to buy sugar. You had to have ration stamps to buy meat. 
and some other some other goods which I can't remember right now. But um, we we had to we had to be careful with with that those items, in particular the sugar because they didn't give us enough sugar to do our canning and bottling of fruit in the in the fall, which we depended on for our winter supply of food. So, so we had to be really extra careful about using sugar for any other purpose so that we would have enough stamps to buy the sugar we needed to to can peaches and pears and apricots and and things like that. Um, th those were staples that we needed, but they did they did allow us if if we if we like if we lived on the farm they did allow us extra sugar for that purpose but that was that was just one thing that i remember uh, we didn't use our meat stamps and so some something that went on a little bit um, was my parents would trade meat stamps to somebody who needed them um, for sugar stamps, which which we needed, and so it became a sort of a little uh, kind of um, bargaining thing that went on. Another thing that was rationed was gasoline, and that that was another thing that farmers needed gasoline to run their tractors to to produce food and to, to produce the goods that we needed for our livelihood. And so we were, we were careful about, about gasoline and about, about the food stamps. And I can't remember, it seems like there might've been rationing of clothing uh, like, uh, like, cloth but i'm not sure about that now some of those things didn't stick in my mind clear till till now <laughs> but anyway rationing was a big deal and we didn't need the meat stamps because we didn't purchase meat we produced it on the farm we had pigs and chickens and and calves that we that we butchered to um, to provide meat for the family so we we could we could trade our meat stamps to somebody who didn't produce it and trade for something that they maybe didn't need as badly as we did so that sort of thing went on a little bit a little bit in the rationing process but everybody had a rations book and everybody had to you had to at the store they had to collect the ration, ration stamps as well as the money you had to provide this much money and this much many stamps to buy those certain items at the store so it was kind of like the stamps were your right to purchase it at all, but then after you had the stamps, you still had to pay the money for it. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. So tell, as a junior high and high school student, what did you do for fun during wartime? Well, I may have said this before, I don't know. When my kids would ask me what we did for fun back in the olden days, I used to say, oh, we used to sit on the edge of the, the crater and watch the crust cool. <laughs> 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 uh, 
But of course, that was just made up. Oh, one one little incident that I can remember from from those days was back before the war began. Um, one of the entertainment things that we would do would be everybody'd gather at somebody's house and and we would make candy. Uh, we make taffy. Taff, taffy, you'd boil the syrups and then you had to take the taffy and pull it in these ways and keep keep doubling it back on itself and pulling it again and then let it harden after, after that. And uh, taffy was one thing that, that they enjoyed making and, and, uh, and fudge um, and uh, other kinds of candy. There was one called divinity and, and uh, can't remember all the names of them, but but that was that was an entertainment. That was an evening's entertainment, and then you got your little treat at the end uh, when when you got done with the with making the candy. So when the sugar went in rationing, why that meant there was no sugar for making candy. We had to save it for the essentials. And so reason that it was. The reason that these things were rationed was because they were not in 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 uh, a big supply like uh, like they had been before that. So we just had to we just had to do do less of that kind of thing. So anyway, we thought that maybe it would be fun to to make candy, but what we did. We had we had a a sack like like just a, a sack from the grocery store, and we went door to door amongst all our neighborhood, and we asked them, "Would you donate us one spoonful of sugar to make so that we can make candy?" And they kind of thought that was entertaining that we thought that up, and so. They would give us one, one spoonful of sugar in our sack. And when we'd been to enough neighbors, then we had a cup of sugar or whatever the recipe called for to, to, make, to make candy. So I remember doing that one time, just going door to door and begging, <laughs> begging some sugar so that we could make fudge or something. So anyway, that was that was kind of interesting we we made bonfires we'd gather up weeds dry weeds from this roadside or the edge of the canal or wherever we gather we weeds leaves anything that would anything that was would burn and we'd make it in a big pile and then we'd have a bonfire and then we'd play night games play run my sheep run or um, uh, jail tag or i can't remember the names of them right now but anyway we'd play these play these team games and the the main the main goal was at, at the bonfire while it was burning. And then that was that was a fun thing to do in the evenings. And we did we did all kinds of of activities in the in the wintertime. We went skating on when the canal or the or the um, reservoir would freeze over we'd we'd skate on on this that we played we played these night games a lot and uh, 
then they gradually began to have um, programs that came on the radio like like the Lone Ranger or uh, other other stories that it would be like a TV show, but it would just you could just hear it. Mm -hmm. Kind of so, like what we're doing right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'd listen to so we'd listen to some of those things on the radio for entertainment. And uh, the girl the girls would have. Uh, would gather together and have little sewing bees making, making uh, clothes of some kind, or, or, or knitting, or uh, um, doing embroidery on dish towels and things like that. Nobody does that anymore, but, <clears throat> but that was just everybody gathered together at somebody's house and work on your, work on your, some of those kind of little things. And uh, we all were, we all were trying to help the war effort. They would have <clears throat> from time to time, the community would have a street dance and uh, they block off a, a <clears throat> They, they'd uh, block off an, an area of the street and uh, have, a, have a, an orchestra playing at one end of the street and then just everybody would just dance. And uh, sometimes the soldiers were home on leave and that was a big, that was a big deal. If, if some of the soldiers were home, I, they'd organize a street dance and then everybody that would celebrate the fact that they got them home. But there was so much, <clears throat> so many casualties and they announced the casualties on the, on the radio, but they printed them in the newspaper and we'd have a long list of of war casualties of of servicemen who were from our area, and they they'd start out with the at the top it would be those that were killed in action, and then under that would be those who were wounded in action, and then it would be those who were missing. And those who were known to be prisoners of war, and those who were were just missing. But all of those things are, and we we eagerly read those newspaper accounts every every day to find out if there were any of the young men that we knew. And the casualties were horrendous. You know, there were so many, so many that uh, lost their lives and were some who became prisoners of war and all those things. And so it was, it was awful. And my mother was such a sweet heart and she, she wrote letters to the all those servicemen from our town. And she just kept them up to date on whatever was going on back home and, and just, wrote letters to all of them. Some of them she'd get responses from and some of them she never would, but but she was just faithful about doing that. And I thought that was very commendable of her to do that all the time. One of, one of the things that came on during that uh, period of time was that um, they wanted they wanted scrap metals of any kind to be uh, brought into uh, collection places. And um, then they would, those things would be loaded onto the trains and taken away to a, to a place where they would be melted down and, 
and reused for for building the whole the whole economy went around the war effort so automobile um, manufacturing ceased and they were made they were building uh, instead of automobiles they were building um, airplanes and boats and all kinds of equipment to be used in the war guns everything so we would gather we would go along the roadway and gather up anything that we thought could be used for the war effort they had a list of things that they wanted us to to find and turn in and so if if anything rubber as interesting rubber i guess for for tires and things but but if anybody like in days before that if anybody had had a flat tire on in their car they might have just changed the tire right there on the side of the road and just thrown the the old tire on the side of the road and or the inner tube things like that and anyway whatever we could find things like that we gather up and and take to the recycling places and it seems to me like that we could get a little bit of money for doing that but I can't remember that for sure now but anyway one thing that I thought was just something that I remember they wanted foil and cigarettes were wrapped in foil packaged in foil and chewing gum was packaged in foil and things like that so we would scout along the side of the road and see what we could find in the way of foil and just wrap it up make a ball out of it we kind of had a little little game to see who could get the biggest foil ball and turn that in <laughs> things That's like awesome. So I've, I've heard before about experiences um, that you and grandpa had with German POWs and interned Japanese citizens that were in um, central and southern Utah. Can you tell me about those experiences? Well, I was aware of the of the prisoners of war that that were being uh, that were being housed close around us, Don, my father didn't ever hire any of them to come, to come help us on our farm. We had boys and we were pretty well self, self-sufficient in that regard. But Don says that he, that they hired them to help get out the sugar beets or whatever they were harvesting. And, uh, they would they would allow the farmers to have the 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 prisoners of war come and work on the, <clears throat> work on their farms and i i knew of a camp down closer to where don grew up that had uh, german prisoners of war in it i knew about that but we didn't ever have them work on our farm but but he did, I understood that they did um, have them come and, and work on their farm. <clears throat> there was a terrible incident in which <clears throat> one of the guards, they, these prisoners were guarded night and day and, and one of the guards went berserk and just took his gun and just shot a bunch of them. And that was a, a guard shot German prisoners of war. Is that what you're yeah, saying? That's what I'm saying. That happened in that camp that was that was near to us. I think several of them were killed and some were wounded. That's just a that's just a a terrible 
circumstance that happened that we knew about didn't affect us personally, but just the sadness that that took place, we didn't think that was right. In regard to the, in regard to the Japanese, there was a, there was a large farm out, outside of, outside of Sigurd and they brought several families of Japanese to live, to live there. And I think at the time I didn't ever, I didn't ever get into the details of how this went about, but they stayed there after the war was over and after after the other Japanese were released to, to return to their homes, why those people stayed there. And I think that they must have, I think they must have purchased that farm, that big, that large farm. But the people that came there to live were accustomed to being uh, what we call truck farmers, meaning that they they grew vegetables and then they loaded them on trucks and sent them to the markets and so there was a a real um, industry going on there regarding the production of food on that on that farm and they used the kind of things that they were expert at and the rest of us got involved with that because we would go to the, they would, they hired a lot of people to help with, with the harvesting of all those uh, crops. And one thing they grew lots of was carrots. And we had already been accustomed to, to they had in the fall, they had, a vacation time from school that they called uh, harvest vacation, and they turned the school let out for two weeks, and we we worked on, in uh, helping take take up the potatoes and help take up the sugar beets and the other crops that. Uh, that we had. And we, we got paid a little bit of money for that. Um, we worked, <clears throat> we worked just for the farmers that, uh, that had the, those crops that needed to be harvested. And then when the, when those Japanese people came and, and started that truck farm up, up above town we helped we helped to gather the carrots and we we take the carrots out of the ground and tie them into into bundles and put them into boxes and then those boxes were were put onto the trucks and they took them away to a processing plant where they were put through some uh, some um, cleaning and that sort of thing, and then sent to market um, from there. And that went on. That went on for years. All all the years of the war. Those they had they had children. We first we first I guess they came in the summer, but we first got acquainted with those Japanese children. Um, because they came to our to church with us, and and uh, so that's how we first got acquainted with them. And then when school started, why they were they were going to school with us, and they'd ride ride the bus with us to 
up to Richfield and and went to school that way. And that was that went on all through all through junior high and high school. We had those families of of uh, Japanese American children that that were living there close to us. And some of the people had a pretty uh, dislike for them because of the war, you know, it was, it was our, our sons and brothers and relatives were over there fighting the Japanese in the war and, and we didn't like it. We didn't like the fact that they started the war on us and, and it had struck us all so strongly. But I remember my mother sitting us down one day when we were in, in our kitchen and just saying that she wanted to talk with us on a very serious subject. And she wanted to, us to understand that we were not to uh, to be mean to those any of those Japanese children in any way that we were to treat them just like the rest of the kids in the school and and just to be decent and I I was kind of surprised at all of that because I hadn't thought of doing anything else anything to them but but I thought it was I I I really appreciated my mother uh, giving us that those words of counsel because then later on I found out that others maybe were not nice to them and tried to bully them and do different things you know because they were of the same race or nationality as our enemies so anyway that was that was something and I we had a we, we had a junior high school chorus that was very well trained and, and did a beautiful, beautiful job of, of performing. And they performed for the, for the community, for our parents and everybody. And those kids uh, were in those choruses the same as we were. So here's my my mother heard some people in that, in the audience when they were all singing. I'm surprised that these kids would sing with those Japanese kids. And my, my mother, I think that might have been one of the times when my mother just let us know that we were expected to be, to be accepting of those kids and decent. Well, the interesting thing about it is that as we, as time went on and we got to know those kids better and and we progressed on up through through the up into high school one of those one of those girls was elected to be the student body president and and i was i thought good they proved themselves and, and people the kids in the school at least accepted her and the other and the other Japanese kids that were there, but there were quite a few of them. That's and awesome. Was this during war? Like the war was still happening when they elected this this girl to be student body president? About the about the time the war ended, but but I'm sure it was before. The, I think it was while the war was still on, but it was when it was when we were when we were. Uh, uh, seniors or juniors along in there when we were up in high school so so i just i was really happy that that the community began to accept them as well and just as a matter of interest quite a few of those um, of those families um, actually joined the church later on 
And yeah, you, you mentioned earlier that they came to church with you, and that's one of the ways you got introduced to the children. And I was wondering if they had already been members before or, is, or if yeah, the no, church they, was something they explored to be more, uh, to try and get involved with the community. Right. That, that, was, that was it. They were, um, I remember, I remember in a Sunday school class, I remember those kids saying, telling us that they were Christians. And, and I thought, well, why are you telling us that we're Christians too? <laughs> but, <laughs> but now that I'm older and think on things a little differently, why then I realized that, that uh, probably somewhere along the line there, they were sort of like um, looked down upon and, and people thought maybe that they were uh, Buddhist or some uh, Asian religion and they wanted us to understand that they were Christians. <laughs> but anyway, I, re I do remember that, sitting in that Sunday school class and hearing those kids tell us that they were Christians and wondering why they told us that. <laughs> anyway. We did, we did like those, we did like those kids. Uh, we were very good, very good friends with them at the end of the but as we went along, I don't mean at the end, I mean as we went along, because they rode the school bus with us. And so, you know, we saw them a lot and, and they, they, were, they were nice. They were nice kids, well-behaved and smart. And they, they made their way in a, in a circumstance. Now, these were not, they were not in a, an inter internment camp, internment camp, but over in Delta, which was an hour or so drive away from us, they did have a, a camp for the Japanese people. And I've heard a lot of stories about that since the war was over. I've heard that that they were sort of like in prison over there. It was a different circumstance for them. But these that we lived that we lived around seemed to be seemed to just be free. They could go, they could do anything we could do. We just they were just going to school with us and they and they ran that farm up there and and they were they were free. So I don't know how they differed from the ones who were in the camp. I don't understand that, but but just that they were and and they did well. Well, that's that's good to hear that they were able to uh, find that uh, acceptance in the community, even so close to the end of the war. Um, I loved hearing about that story of the woman getting elected as class president. Um, yeah. we're going to wind down, but before we do, I, I wanted to share one experience that I heard from grandpa when I was a boy about his, uh, upbringing, uh, near Delta when I was, uh, 13 or 14 years old, we had a extra credit assignment we could do in junior high about world war two. If we had any relatives who were alive during world war two, we could interview them and write up a paper about it. And so I interviewed grandpa and he shared with me an experience that has stuck with me just because it was so funny and unexpected. He, he told me in this interview about one day when he was working in the fields, uh, you, you, had men you mentioned how that his family did hire some of the German POWs to help them with the farm work. Um, grandpa as a young man, um, probably junior high aged, was working in the fields and he was 
unexpectedly, he met up with one of these German POWs in the field and he talked about how there was just this moment of like, they both sort of turned around and each other were there. And uh, grandpa said, hello. And the German man just sort of smiled at him and didn't really know what to say. And there was this long, awkward silence. And then the German man said the only English thing he knew, he just sort of awkwardly smiled and said, John Wayne, John Wayne, like the movie star, John Wayne. <laughs> and grandpa said, grandpa smiled big and said, John Wayne and did two little like pistol with his hands, I think. Um, I don't remember if that was 100% part of it, but they, they sort of smiled and connected over John Wayne and then went back to work. Um, and I, I just, that stuck with me so much. My, my grandpa just smiling as uh, he, <laughs> John Wayne united this German POW with this <laughs> central Southern Utah junior high aged boy. Um, I, I don't know this think is, I I don't think I've ever heard that before. I don't know that particular little story. That's cute. Yeah, I, it stuck with me because of, yeah, because it's cute and it's fun. I, uh, I have the essay around here somewhere that I wrote about it, but uh, I know this is your podcast, but I, I wanted to uh, put that little memory that I obtained into it. Well, there's, a, there's another little thing that that reminded me of he said that these sometimes these prisoners would would sing and there was a there was a song uh, that was that was popular at that time and and they they were singing this this song about Lily Marlene and uh, that sounds very german to me and it could have been where it started from but i knew i knew this song from just from it being a popular song in in the united states but but he said that he heard the Ger these german prisoners singing so he just joined in and sang with them and and i thought that was kind of a cute little story too <clears throat> mm -hmm. so before we end today uh today's conversation is there anything else you'd like to add? I don't know. We have we we haven't said very much about the fact that it was such a like a just a terrible time because all our young men were having to leave us the whole economy was upended we couldn't get the things that we were used to getting that we needed it was it was kind of a time of real gloom but on the other hand my parents were not one to let any problems get them down. They were always being cheerful and, and helping us to look at the bright side of everything. And, and so there was, there was this, these kind of, well, it's a little bit like the year just passed where everybody is in It's in gloom because all the things that we're accustomed to doing, we couldn't do, but we still can find happiness and find the bright side of everything and go along and do well anyway. So it was sort of like, it's sort of like that. It was just an overall feeling all the time of sorrow, sadness, because we were losing so many young men and the, the, everything upended. And then on the other hand, 
everybody, most people trying to make the best of it and trying to find ways of being happy in spite of the difficulties that we were in. So I just want to mention that. Yeah. Which brings me, which reminds me, I do have one last question. Um, also, I like to end on, I like to end on a high note. Uh, how did you feel when the war ended on VE Day and VJ Day, respectively? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> joy, great joy, great happiness, great relief, national celebration. It was just the happiest day. Everybody was just so excited. VE Day, we were happy and we were thrilled about it, but we still had that big giant in the Pacific that had to be taken care of. And I just, I couldn't believe how much it took to defeat the Japanese, to get them to quit that they knew that their cause was ended, but they just kept on fighting and kept on, kept on fighting. And, and we even got, we even got down to that point of, at the very end where our secret weapons, we've been, we've been hearing little rumors that we had these secret weapons and and our secret weapons were revealed and we, and we uh, used those two bombs. I don't know why they didn't quit after the first one. I don't know why they didn't quit before we did that, but, but they didn't, you know, and their tenacity was amazing. They just kept on going and kept on going. And then, and then Hiroshima happened and they still didn't give up and finally Nagasaki happened and then at last they gave up but it took took quite a while it took a, a long time after Germany was was defeated before they before they finally knew that they had to give up and they did. But that I was I was amazed at the time about their the way they just kept on kept on going and, and finally they did. We've been criticized in the last in the later years a lot for using those bombs because it did kill a lot massive amounts of civilians as well as the uh, as well as the military but but if you have if you have the understanding like we did of what they'd been doing to us for so many years and just all the horror of of those extended battles and all the number of people that died and all the atrocities that they committed and all the people that were in our in the prison camps and so on if you had that in your mind and understood it why it was just good sense to use those bombs and get that war ended as so, fast as possible it sounds like was the goal that was the goal, and and when when those when those bombs were ready, we only had two. I guess the Germans didn't know that that, or the Japanese didn't know that that's all we had. <laughs> but, but they used those, and and that convinced them. And then, and then that exultant happy day, my. My sister had lived in Chicago all through the war. And then her husband got transferred to San Francisco. He was already in San Francisco getting 
his new his new job going and she was staying with us had her her little little kids she had two little kids at the time and she was staying with us while he was getting a place for them in San Francisco to live and as it would happen that's exactly when the war ended and she just wrung her hands and said I've been living in a big city for all these years and now when this important exciting thing happens where am I Sigurd Utah she thought that was just <laughs> <laughs> she wanted to be out in the streets uh, yeah. partying and throwing newspapers like all the pictures that I, I see in history books. Yeah, yeah. She was, she thought that was just awful that, that, that she was glad the war was over, not that, but just awful that she had to be. She could have been either in Chicago still or in San Francisco, but to be in Sigurd when the war ended, oh my <laughs> well grandma thank you very much for today's conversation i loved it and um i learned much and uh i'm grateful that you are doing these conversations with me um i'm going to end the recording now but uh i just want to say again thank you very much and uh i love you i love you too jonathan i'm glad you're doing this Thank you.